Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcasts.com. Um, also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. Um, and today we have uh, a returning guest, actually. He's been on the show before a little while back. Um, and we're actually going to be kind of continuing our discussion from the first uh, time he was on the show. But Dr. Sam Renahan, who is a minister at Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in La Mirada, California, um, has an MDiv from Westminster Seminary, California, and a PhD from Free University of Amsterdam. Uh, Dr. Renahan, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you very much to you both. I'm looking forward to it. So we're going to talk about your new book, The Pretty France Church Part 2, and and I say it's a continuation because we had talked about Part 1 the first time you were on. Um, it's You have since completed Part 2, kind of diving even more into the history of uh, the Petty France Church in London. Um, so what kind of was the inspiration for continuing the discussion into the Petty France Church? In the first place, um, I just love, I love, Baptist history and particular Baptist history. And I've really enjoyed getting to know this church. So the more I, I delve, the more I dig into it, the more I just enjoy it for my own personal enjoyment. So if, if no one reads it and, and no one really is, if no one <laughs> reads it, that's fine. Uh, I enjoy it. And I think it's important. And uh, it's what I want to do um, for my own enjoyment and for the sake of, of Baptist history. So part of it is just my own love for Baptist history and the Petty France Church. Another another motivation behind working on the Petty France Church parts one and two and more in the future, Lord willing, is a desire to that these things not be forgotten. Um, you know, mm -hmm. the records will stay there whether I write about them or not, but to to help Baptists become more aware of their history and ensure that we mm -hmm. don't forget our own history is part of my motivation for publishing uh, literature today about Baptist history. And related to that is it's it's really a desire to demonstrate a proof of concept. What I mean is if, if you think about Baptist history, um, when I was in seminary, uh, I, I assumed, I not because I necessarily had inf a, re a reason to assume this or information to assume this, but I, I assumed at this point in, 20, in the 2020s or 20 teens back then, um, I assumed surely Baptist history, we know everything there is to know, right? You know, by now we, we know that everything that there is to know, but then I became aware that there's quite a bit more yet to be discovered. There's quite a bit more yet to be brought to light and it can correct previous errors in Baptist history. It can give us new information. And so my work in the Petty France church is part of that, that proof of concept to show people there is much more to be discovered or recovered, and it's it's worth doing the work to find those sources, to read them, to understand them, and to make them available again to the world. And so some may look at Baptist history and think, well, it's, you know, that mine is empty. There's no more diamonds. There's no more gems. Everything in Baptist history has already been uh, dug out. And my work, as well as Larry Kreitzer's work, on William Kiffin and others now are are invincible proofs at this point that there's quite that Baptist history is not a dead field. It's not an empty mine, and that if only people are willing to do the work, there is much yet to be gleaned and much yet to be enjoyed uh, in Baptist history. So I, I do it because I enjoy it. 
I do it because I want Baptists to know about their history, and I do it because it's very rewarding to me to be able to contribute to a field with genuinely new material. Um, some, some fields are just secondary sources arguing with secondary sources, and it goes on and on and on in an endless cycle. But to be able to truly contribute something new uh, to the field is very rewarding for me, and, and I enjoy that very much. Yeah, it's really um, interesting that you talk about secondary sources because you do provide quite a bit of primary source material. You have church records, uh, wills, and testaments, and things like that. To get access to this type of uh, primary source material, did you have to travel to England quite a bit, or did you have access to this material um, from where you are in California? How did that work? It's a mix of both. Um, it's actually quite amazing what I am able to access from home and quite a lot, uh, in fact, that I'm able to look at. And when I say things I'm able to access, I'm talking about primary sources. Mm -hmm. To see primary sources from my computer in my home or in my study, which is uh, something I do on a regular basis. And then <clears throat> when I become aware of records that I can't see from home that are not accessible to me uh, at a distance, I just make a list of those things and I try to make one research trip a year to England to go see those sources in the archives. Now, some of them, if, if there's just one thing you need at some you know, random archive in, in England, you know, if I go to London, it's not necessarily easy to run out to uh, a history center in Kent or, or some other county. So what, another thing you can do is just you can call them or you can fill out an, an order form and you can pay for them to photograph the item and send it to you, which uh, they don't charge exorbitant rates, generally speaking. And let's say you paid uh, $20 American dollars to get pictures of an item. Well, that's a lot cheaper than flying to You're right. <laughs> and, and all of those things. So much of it, I'm just able to see here. Um, some of it I make, especially the, the London resources, I make a list and I try to go once a year, but other things I've paid for, um, the archives themselves to take images, um, to take photographs of, of items and send them to me. So that again is me doing work from home. It just is a little bit more effort than uh, because I need them to take the pictures of the items. So uh, I do I do try to travel and I really, really enjoy the time in the archives. Uh, I, I would do it all day, every day if I could. <laughs> uh, it's it's so much fun and I, and I really enjoy it. So if if you ever, if there's people who are interested in, in really seriously doing this kind of work, I'd be happy to, to share some of my experience and, and how to do it because it's not, it's not difficult in itself. It's just specific. You just kind of need to know what and where, and once someone tells you, you, you know, you know, it's not calculus. It's just very rather specific information that takes some time to, to understand. So it's, it's, it can be done and it should be done. And I hope others are motivated. Yeah, the, the primary source material, it, it helps us to go right back to the sources. We're not just relying on what someone said about someone else. We're actually reading what they said, and it helps to preserve that history, I think. Um, but, you know, kind of along those lines, you talk in the book about the Harrison family. You focus quite a bit on them. Um, in terms of the Petty France Church, what was their significance in particular Baptist life? The Harrison family is the focus of this part uh uh, in or this book, part two, because Edward Harrison is the founder of the Petty France Church. He was the first pastor. Um, there were 
other particular Baptist churches that precede the Petty France Church, and some of them were members in other churches, but then they, they came together with Edward Harrison in the 1650s to establish this church, which met in Petty France, London. So Edward Harrison was the first pastor of the church, and his family remained in the church for several generations, even after he died, which means that the Harrison family is just very central to the church. And, and that would be evident even if we just looked at Harrisons themselves. But the to say that the Harrisons are the sort of the, the heart of the church is most clearly perceived what that means when you realize that so many of the other families in the church were related to the Harrisons uh, through marriage. And so the Harrison larger family, uh, they don't all have the surname Harrison, but the Harrison larger family is a core part of the membership and the officers of that church. And so studying the Harrisons and their relatives means that you are studying the Petty France Church and you're learning about their socioeconomic makeup. You're learning about the family relationships and the, the struggles that they faced. So that the Harrison, their, their significance to the Petty France Church is really all of that social history. Uh, who, who is the church? You know, who are the members of the Petty France Church? Well, a big chunk of them are the Harrisons and their network of, of family members. And, but narrowing in the focus to, to Edward himself, he would be the founder and the first pastor uh, of the Petty France Church for a period of about 20, the first 20 years of the church. And um, yeah, but like I said, the Harrison family continues on in the church well after, well after his death in 1673. So would you say there was some overlap between like Nehemiah Cox um, is presence there and the and the Harrisons, or were they um, gone at that point? So Edward Harrison died in 1673. So the first pastor he died, and Nehemiah Cox uh, is ordained two years later with William mm. Collins. So Nehemiah Cox did not overlap with Edward Harrison as a minister. However, Edward Harrison's family continued on in the church, and so Nehemiah Cox was was a pastor of the Harrison family mm. um, of Edward's widow and Edward's children. And then when Nehemiah Cox died, that's when Thomas Harrison, Edward's youngest son, that's when he was called to be a ministerial assistant to William Collins. So Thomas Harrison in some ways replaces Nehemiah Cox, although he's not called as a pastor. He's really just a, a gifted brother, a ministerial assistant. And then later he becomes a pastor of, of a separate church. So Nehemiah doesn't overlap with Edward as pastors, but the Harrison family certainly li uh, lived under Nehemiah's ministry. Okay. Um, going back to uh, the discussion about um, primary sources and all that, um, it seems that uh, the uh, the particular Baptists, specifically at the Petty France Church, were meticulous in keeping records, at least by modern standards. Occasionally, you do run into something that, oh, I wish they had said this, but they didn't. Um, why do you think it is that is? Um, why do you think they were so meticulous in keeping records? So it's important to remember that um, for someone like Edward Harrison and particular Baptist ministers of his generation, many of them began as parish priests. Um, they, they were ordained in the Church of England and they served in the Church of England before they became particular Baptist pastors. And as, as parish priests, they were, they were required to keep records of every baptism, every marriage, and every burial in their parish. And then they needed to each year um, 
make a copy of those baptisms, marriages, and burials for the year and send a transcript of, for example, 2022's baptisms and burials and marriages to the bishop. So they're keeping their own record that stays there in the parish church, and they're making duplicate copies per year to send to the bishop. And this means that record keeping was a normal part and common practice of the day for ministers. And of course, with the parish model, there's an intertwining of church and state. So the church's records are the state's records and the state's records are the church's records. They're very much intertwined. Now, when you, when you detach from that model and you come into the context of dissenting churches, on the one hand, some of these first generation pastors they have a long history of recording all the things happening in their church already. They've done it for, for many years. But more specifically, if um, previously their churches were determined by a geographical boundary, well, I know who belongs to my church because these are the geographical boundaries of the parish. And so that's who belongs to my church. But in the context of a dissenting church, how do you know who your members are? Uh, it's not based on where they live, uh, at least not, not that does not determine who your members are. Um, so you need to have a list. You, you need to know over whom am I shepherding, over whom am I pastoring, uh, who are the members of this church? It, it needs to be recorded in some way. That's one part of it is you don't know who your church is if you don't write it down. Uh, and then similar to that, with the particular Baptists in mind specifically, they, they are congregational churches. Uh, and so that means that they have regular, often monthly congregational meetings where the business of the church is going to be transacted. And they often keep records of those congregational meetings because it's open to everyone. And many churches will have um, members of the church sign each record of each congregational meeting. The Petty France church book doesn't function that way, but others do. So you'll have a record of a congregational meeting and then you'll have, you know, like Hercules Collins signs it. And then maybe five, six, seven, eight members also sign that record to say, we, we agree. This is what happened. This is a record of our congregational meeting. The Petty France Church is not quite that extensive in terms of having members signing it, but it is important. Uh, it is the church's book. And so it's, it's an open record for everyone in the congregation to, to remember, okay, this is when so-and-so was added. This is when so-and-so was disciplined. This is when so-and-so was restored. Uh, it's important for the life of a, especially a congregational church where the, the congregation is so involved in the exercising the keys of the kingdom in matters of admitting, remitting, disciplining, restoring uh, members of the church. And if, if you think about it today, if we don't keep records in our churches, we have numerous fallbacks or recourses to determine what happened and when. We can say, oh, let's check our, our phone messages. Let's check our emails. Let's look at our phone calls or even social media. Um, you know, there's a variety of ways where information is recorded sort of passively for us, which was not the case back then. If you didn't write it down, Either someone had to remember it or it needed to be kept alive through some kind of oral tradition, neither of which are going to be very good for congregational church life that where it matters who's part of the church and what has happened in the life of the church. So it makes a lot of sense to, to write those things down in an objective record um, for the church. And it, it's a common practice. Uh, it seems that most of the churches had a church book. It doesn't mean that those 
books have all survived, but there's a, a good amount of them. And it's interesting, th these are very rare, and we don't have one for the Petty France Church, but some of the dissenting churches or the nonconformists, they even essentially kept their own uh, register of births and, and uh, burials and marriages, because if, you're, if your child is not baptized in the parish, there may be no record of their, of their birth, which we, we shouldn't overstate to say, so they're not citizens or something like that. No, they're, they're still English citizens. They're still subjects of the crown, but there's no record of, of their birth. And so some of the non some nonconformist churches actually have surviving registers of not congregational records, but just births, um, not baptisms, but births and marriages and burials. The baptisms would be recorded in, in the church book proper. And so we have one of those, for example, for Benjamin Keach's church, uh, for Horsley Down. Uh, and Keach, you know, records his own birth, uh, you know, and his family and all kinds of things, which has a lot of valuable information you would never get from a, a congregational church book that's just focused on ecclesiastical matters. So their record keeping gives us a lot of information for the life of the church and for the life of the church members. And I'm, I'm very thankful that, that, they, that they took the time to do it uh, because it would have, you know, we can just rapidly type things out, but they had to sit down, write these things out. And, um, and I'm glad that they did. And it's interesting up. that you say that it's like, um, if, if they didn't have a record, you know, maybe there was an accusation brought against, you know, a pastor, Hey, the pastor said this at a meeting, now we can go back and verify that this was actually said or done. It could be a reputational issue um, and help protect against slander. Absolutely. Um, sort of going uh, going off what you were saying about uh, a lot of the uh, uh, early particular Baptist ministers coming out of uh, the Anglican system. Um, in chapter three, you discuss Edward Harrison and that he was educated in Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, before he was a particular Baptist, uh, did the higher education of at least some particular Baptists help their cause uh, for relevance in England? It, it definitely did. Um, the idea of independent churches and ordination of ministers independently of um, bishops and the Anglican establishment was at that time a rather radical change. And it led to a, a great deal of disdain because so anyone can be a pastor, so anyone can, can start their own church. And, and there's you know reasonable, at least cause for, for pause and, and criticism uh, in that we would say the same thing today. You know, if, if all sorts of people were self-appointing themselves ministers and, and starting their own churches, wait, people do that. Um, but back then it would have been even more radical and, and new in the early part of the 17th century. And you see things called, uh, or you, you'll see a phrase sometimes called tub preachers. Tub preachers. What, what's a tub preacher? Well, it's the idea that all it took for someone to be a preacher or a pastor is get a wash tub, turn it over, stand on it, and suddenly you're a preacher. Or they would take a big barrel uh, open it and, and stand in it. And now they have a pulpit, you know, and so tub preachers was a very uh, negative name that was used to criticize nonconformists, especially lay persons who just took it upon themselves to teach churches or to preach to people, etc. So if you want to 
regain or maintain a degree of respect and relevance in the eyes of the established church or the population, it certainly helps to say that a good number of our ministers were educated in Oxford and or Cambridge. They were ordained in the Church of England, and then they came to Baptistic Congregationalist and then Baptistic convictions. And it means that those first generation particular Baptist pastors who did have this education were able to converse with the clergy in the Church of England and and the literature of their day on the same level. Um, you know, they, they could say, we went to school together. We were ordained in the same church together. They could not be just dismissed as tub preachers. They could not just be dismissed as, well, you're just tailors and, and tinkers uh, and tub preachers. Um, they were they were equally educated, equally experienced with other uh, Anglican or Presbyterian or Congregationalist ministers with whom they had grown up, with whom they had been educated, with whom they had served for a time in the Church of England. So Edward's Edward Harrison's education and ordination uh, certainly helped in his cause for for relevance. It doesn't mean that that everyone just respected him automatically. In fact, they may have lost respect for him because he became a Baptist, but it meant that he could not just be dismissed um, because he did have that kind of education and preparation that others had shared. And if you look at someone like John Toombs, um, he, he receives a great deal of applause, or that's probably not the best word, but he's often commended for his learning. Uh, and because he, he also had, had not only been well-educated, but showed a great deal of wide reading and understanding of um, 16th and 17th century literature. So John Toombs would be another, another example of how a degree of respect was given to, uh, John Toombs wasn't a particular Baptist, but he was a, um, a credo-Baptist. It's an, it shows that um, there were men whose education was respected, and it did help them to engage others of their day at a high level. And we could look at um, Benjamin Cox, we could look at Hansard Knowles, Christopher Blackwood, uh, and others would be other examples of university-educated, Church of England-ordained ministers who then became first-generation particular Baptist pastors. Yeah, I can I can see how that would help with their credibility, and um, but also kind of working the other way, they it could be a, a slight on them because they were with those men at the time. They could say, "Well, look, I guess you didn't learn anything that we taught you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> we taught yeah. you all this stuff, and you're and you're abandoning it. You know what are you what are you doing?" It goes both ways because you'll yeah. see in the 1640s, um, you'll see the particular Baptists appealing to. Uh, the Presbyterians and saying there was a time when we were all in the Church of England, there was a time when when you they're talking to the Presbyterians saying when you refused to to submit to the impositions of laud and you said this is not lawful to be done in the church and you were zealous for reform and for purity in the worship of the church and they'll say we are simply con continuing. Uh, that same mindset. So you should not treat us like radicals or, or people who are out of our minds when you have done the same and, and you have been persecuted and you have been criticized uh, in the past for, for your resistance to ceremonies that were not contained in the word of God. Why would you treat us so, so different now? 
Um, so their experience, their common experience with education and ordination uh, in common with others certainly was a feature of really the first generation particular Baptists. It's not something you see in the second generation because they didn't have that common experience uh, with others. So there's something special about someone like Edward Harrison and others like him uh, who lived in that transitional period through the 1630s and 40s where um, they began in the universities and they began in the Church of England and then they end up as particular Baptist pastors. Now, kind of along those lines, um, you know, you see Edward Harrison also coming out of uh, Anglicanism, like similar to Benjamin Cox. What was, um, I guess at a high level, what was that specific appeal for these men as they were leaving? What was it that started to get their attention to start reforming uh, in their own minds? In the cases of Benjamin Cox and Edward Harrison, we don't have a specific moment or source where we can say, you know, they met so-and-so or they read such and such a book and it was this that convinced them to become Congregationalist and or Credo-Baptist. However, um, we can say, like you said at a high level, that there was a general Puritan mindset um, at that time and well before that time that the religious life of the church must conform to scripture. What we do as worship unto God and service to God must be drawn from and based on what he has commanded in his word. And so this is why parish priests, entirely independent of the, the credo-baptism debate, they became very uncomfortable. Some of them became very uncomfortable with the idea of just giving the sacrament, the Lord's Supper, to everyone in their parish. They said, wait, this is not the right way. This is not what God has commanded us to do. This is not according to the word of God. And that's just one instance of how there's a general Puritan mindset. Of course, that, that name Puritan was used negatively at, at people for various reasons. But if we take it in the positive, later sort of retrospective sense of those who were zealous for purity in the worship of the church of God, um, then we can see, you know, where, where would this have come from? Well, if you are reforming the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and saying this is only for those who are the saints, this is only for those who, who trust in Christ and show a life of obedience and repentance, uh, it, it's not a large leap that they would reevaluate and reconsider their practice of baptism. Are we baptizing in a way that matches God's commands and God's scripture? And some of them became convinced, no, this the, the institution of baptism in Matthew 28, the, the words of institution are that disciples should be baptized, etc. So the, the general Puritan mindset is certainly a backdrop uh, and a, a large contextual factor for why someone like Benjamin Cox and Edward Harrison, who are in the Church of England, would then leave the Church of England and establish independent churches. More, uh, maybe not more specifically, but uh, coordinately with this, you would have general reformed soteriology and covenant theology, uh, which, uh, if you follow certain of its branches, uh, yields very naturally a particular Baptist covenant theology which yielded a credo-baptist practice, which we don't need to go through those arguments, but uh, those that larger uh, reform soteriology and covenant theology was another part of the theological context that would have led men like Benjamin Cox and Edward Harrison to come to these conclusions. But historically speaking, one of the big sort of catalysts was the pressure of Laud, 
uh, if you're a parish priest trying to reform or trying to keep your parish as faithful as possible to scriptures, your ability to do that is somewhat dependent on the, your bishop. If your bishop is lenient, then you have a degree of freedom to preach and to practice in a more Puritan way. Um, but with Laud coming to power and really putting pressure on the bishops and the bishops putting pressure on the priests, then it becomes a catalyst to force out those who simply won't conform and those who won't do, who won't follow a Laud's agenda and all its related um, theology and practice. So why would Cox and why would Harrison leave the Church of England in, you know, in the 1630s or, or 40s? Well, one of the reasons, especially in the 1630s, is going to be that catalyzing pressure of Laud's agenda, uh, forcing out priests who won't, uh, who won't conform. Um, right, so you have the, the general Puritan mindset. You have certain streams of Reformed theology or certain trajectories of Reformed theology, and then you have that catalyzing pressure of Laud. All of these things are combining to, uh, to bring about that shift from your uh, parish priest to particular Baptist pastor. And it's important to, to trace these things because how many times have we seen on social media or elsewhere, people make some general comment about the particular Baptist come from here or the particular Baptist come from there, or they are this or they are that. Well, the more we do the work of tracing individuals, uh, the more we can give, a, we can make general statements based on particular facts. And so it's very helpful if you say, well, who were the particular Baptists and where did they come from? Once we've traced Benjamin Cox and once we've traced Edward Harrison and so on and so forth, it becomes an, an undeniable uh, historical record of, of who they were, which may it may cause us as Baptist historians to speak in a more accurate way. Uh, but it, it can also correct the uh, exaggerations and simply unfounded accusations of others uh, who would say, well, they were Anabaptists, you know, or something like that and say, there's nothing of Anabaptism going in, in, in this. That, you know, if we look at Benjamin Cox and Edward Harrison in particular, uh, we have their story. We don't need to guess. We don't need to make generalizations. We can just say, this is their story. Here you go. You know, so that's part of my motivation too, in, in looking at these things. Yeah, not to mention you have, you know, like the first London Baptist Confession was specifically denying Anabaptism because those were not unfound or those were not unprecedented accusations at the time, even of them. Um, but yeah, um, it, you know, talking about them coming out of the Church of England kind of speaks to so also to their political background because of the integration of church and state. Um, but it seems that even after uh, you know, you see this breakaway from the Church of England, you still see some integrations with the state. And you talk in the book about the leveler controversy and um, kind of the effects that that had on a particular Baptist. Can you expound upon that a little bit? Yes, the, the levelers were a group that wanted to establish a democratic government where <clears throat> there would be an agreement of the people, that's their language, an agreement of the people, which is essentially a constitution, there would be a constitution that governs the land, a constitution that the people have agreed to. The, the population of the, of the nation agrees to a certain constitution, and then that constitution governs the governors and the governed. Uh, everyone is equally accountable to this agreement of the people that the citizens can't violate it, the rulers can't violate it, as an attempt to prevent 
uh, tyranny and to guarantee the freedoms of the, of the population, which of course is in the context of the accusations of tyranny that were leveled against Charles I and, and he was executed for as a tyrant. Um, but also the, the people of, of England had seen that parliament uh, controlled by um, the, the Presbyterians to, to speak in general terms had also imposed upon them Parliament's desire to uh, impose the Westminster Confession and its related documents onto the onto the nation was viewed as just as restrictive restrictive on liberty of conscience as the Anglican establishment prior to them, uh, and so when you have Charles I removed from the throne and his, and his head removed from his shoulders. Uh, and you have parliament that gets purged by the independents uh, so that it's not Presbyterians controlling the, the church-state relationships. Uh, at this point, the levelers see a historical moment where the, the field has been cleared and we are now at a moment where we can institute something like an agreement of the people, a constitution that will rule the entire nation uh, and the population will be governed through representatives, all of whom are accountable to this constitution etc. Well, it, it didn't work out. <laughs> it didn't happen. Um, and some particular Baptists agreed with those political views. They agreed with the levelers. You can hear in the name, it, it's leveling. No one is special. You know, there's no house mm. of lords and house of commons. There's no king and subjects. It's just, we are the English and we mm. govern ourselves through this agreement. Everything is leveled. Um, some particular Baptists agreed with the levelers. They agreed with the proposed agreement of the people. There was a specific manifesto that had been written and proposed as the constitution of the realm. And some of them even brought this manifesto into the churches and wanted to read it in the, in the churches. And some of them did read it in their churches and they were trying to get subscribers, you know, put your name to this like a petition so that we can try to get this pushed through. And then other particular Baptists uh, apologized to Parliament for this, saying we did not approve of this being read in our churches. It shouldn't have been read in our churches. It's not what should be done. You know, we offer this petition to Parliament to say, don't, you know, don't persecute us, because at that point in time, Parliament had had begun to deem the levelers as traitorous, uh, and they were they they began to I don't know persecute's the right word, but take action against levelers who were criticizing the government. And so the particular Baptist churches are saying, you know, hey, don't don't paint us all with this brush. But there were particular Baptists uh, who did agree with those with the levelers, mm. such as Edward Harrison. And they really did think that the leveler agenda should be brought in as the government of the kingdom or not the kingdom, the, the nation uh, of England. So. Um, yeah, that that's in some what the levelers were trying to accomplish and. The particular Baptists, some some were pro, some were contra, or at least non-committal. Um, I'm sure that most of the, I believe that most of the particular Baptists would have been largely sympathetic to many of the ideas in the Leveler uh, agenda or the Leveler manifesto, though they may not have all, they did not all follow it to the conclusions or the extremes that the Levelers themselves did. I think that that situation shows, one, that these were men of their day. They, they were truly impacted by the, the times they're in. Two, I think it, it shows that the political pressure around them was was pretty strong, you know, especially given, um, you know, the fact that particular Baptists were persecuted for nonconformity. So it would make sense that they would want a governmental system that would be more in their favor than not. Right. 
And they felt that many times their freedoms had been just completely overridden, denied, restricted. Mm. Um, and they wanted, the levelers made it clear that they wanted to set up a constitution that could not be undone in the future. You know, kind of like a new Magna Carta. The Magna Carta is, is designed to guarantee rights, you know, to perpetuity. Uh, and they want something like that to be put into place. But uh, and that was their agreement of the people that was proposed, but it, it was not accepted. It was not received. Did they try to over or did they try to establish um, their former government by force or was it strictly through legal means? I don't recall from the book. Um, in the in January of 1649, the levelers proposed their agreement of the people and it began to be discussed. But then that's when Charles I was on trial and the uh -huh. agreement of the people got pushed to the side and, and never really came back to it. Parliament mm. didn't come back to it. And then um, after Charles I was executed, again, they didn't come, Parliament didn't come back to that agreement of the people. The levelers are frustrated. And even more specifically, the government was organized into a council of state and a council of war, and neither of which were elected. Um, the, mm. the members of the council of state and the members of the council of war you know, in the early 16, 1649, you have two unelected, essentially independently sovereign government entities, which this is what Edward Harrison wrote about in his doleful complaint, his, his painful complaint. Um, he was he was saying we have two unelected entities governing the nation when we were trying to put democracy, uh, you know, a, a representative democracy into place. So it seemed like awful betrayal. And some of the levelers began to write public criticisms of the Council of State and the Council of War. And that's why they were deemed traitorous and seditious, and some of them were imprisoned. I don't recall if the levelers ever organized any kind of, um, any kind of opposition beyond political pressure after that. They, they, they could have, but my focus was just on Edward Harrison's part, and he didn't do anything more other than publish mm. a book. Whether the levelers themselves did, that's that's possible. I just don't know. Uh, I'm yeah. not sure. Okay. Um, moving on from uh, this period to the uh, the restoration period, um, you have the uh, Petty France Church starting to be harassed by the uh, the authorities there. Um, why were they persecuted, and uh, what effect did that have on the particular Baptist of uh, their life, the particular Baptist life there? When Charles II is restored. Um, to the nation, to the throne, over the kingdom. Um, if you asked him, who killed your father? <laughs> who killed Charles I? Uh, <laughs> he, he's, going to, he, he's going to say uh, the nonconformists, <laughs> you know, the, the non, those who are anti-monarchy and anti-established church. Well, that's the nonconformists pretty much. So we, it's important to remember that when the Petty France Church and others, they're, they're just one instance of many others, when they come under uh, pressure and persecution after the Restoration, this is, this could, this, it would be so narrowly, um, it would be so myopic to look at this and say, this is just religious, religious people persecuting religious people. This is just religious intolerance. I mean, it is religious intolerance, but there's, such a political and historical context behind the government wanting to suppress nonconformist meetings 
because if you have people who are organizing themselves on their own, independent of any authority, making their own churches, it was often those particular social alliances and social communities that became hotbeds of social unrest and political um, political opposition to the government. And so you want to suppress those meetings so that they don't organize themselves into another civil war, into another army that will try again to defeat the king and maybe take Charles II's head off. Uh, you know, the government, they don't know. that they So they have informants that are trying to, to watch them. And then the informants report back, they are talking about revolution. They are talking about, you know, anti-monarchical um, things. So the government shouldn't have done that, but they're not crazy to think we need to deal with these people. Um, they mm -hmm. did represent a, a threat of sorts. You know, you can't paint every nonconformist or every nonconformist church with the same brush. It, it's somewhat dependent on how radical their, their pastor or pastors were. Some are less, some are more, uh, but it is a truth that among the nonconformist or dissenting communities and churches, that is where you're going to find the social and political um, dissidents and um, opponents of, of the government. So the Petit France church comes under, comes under persecution and pressure after the restoration for the same reason that the rest of the nonconformists and the dissenters were. I don't see anything special about the Petit France Church that made them a particular target. Um, it, they seem to be a, a common sufferer in a common persecution of Presbyterians and Congregationalists and particular Baptists and General Baptists all at the same time. Um, now, this had an effect on, on those churches in a variety of ways. One thing it did is it helped to solidify the identity, the communal identity of the particular Baptists, because it, it, it cost you something to be there. If you chose to attend a particular Baptist church in the 1660s and 1670s and early 1680s, well, really up to 1689, but from the restoration until 1689, it, it meant something that you were there. Mm. It, there was a real danger. You could lose your... Um, you could be fined, you know, for a conventicle conviction. And if you get fined 20 pounds, that's a lot of money. That's a very serious fine. Um, Nehemiah Cox's entire personal wealth in his probate inventory was 80 pounds. So if you get fined 20 pounds for housing a conventicle or being there, you know, they have progressive tiers. Your first offense is so much and so on. Um, you could lose a lot of money. You could be put in prison, and many of them were. Uh, and if you... If the government really followed through on things, they could banish you from the land. If you were if you were uh, convicted of attending a conventicle, an illegal religious meeting, and you did not conform after that, you could be forced to abjure the realm. You had to leave. You mm. were banished. And so, which is all to say, this pressure is going to solidify the communal identity of the particular Baptist churches because it means something that you're there. It's a sacrifice. You're accepting the danger. You're saying, I, I choose to be with you. I choose to be with this church despite the dangers. But the flip side of that is that when people leave, or the particular Baptist churches, especially if they leave to go to the Church of England and conform, it's regarded as uh, really treachery. It's, hmm. it's betrayal. You know, we have suffered so much from them. They persecute us. And you're going to join them. You're going to be with them. 
um, that's why one of the reasons why you'll see uh, Nehemiah Cox was imprisoned uh, when he was in Bedford. And he was imprisoned for seditious words. And his seditious words were that the Church of England, as it is now established, is an anti-Christian church. Uh, he's saying the way that the Church of England is operating right now, he doesn't mean the church completely or in all of its history, but right now it's being anti-Christian because it's persecuting the true Church of Christ. Uh, and so if you then are a member of, say, the Bedford Church or later the Petty France Church, and you choose, you say, I'm going to that church, I'm going to the parish church, and I'm aligning myself with it, 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 it meant something. Just as it meant something to be with the particular Baptist or the nonconformist, it meant something to leave uh, and it was a threat. Are they going to tell on us? Are they going to report? Are they going to betray us even further? Not just a personal betrayal of you left our group, but uh, a political betrayal by you know telling, disclosing where we have our meetings and who our pastors are. Um, you know, it it meant a lot to be there, and it meant a lot to leave those churches. So the the pressure, uh, the pressure really solidified a communal identity, and I think that this is actually. Um, something that needs to be kept in mind for why the singing controversy erupted when it did. It's post 1689. You know, they don't have to like be friends anymore. <laughs> they can just argue now. Um, uh, that, that's obviously, you wouldn't write that in a dissertation, but there's, there's some degree of truth to the fact that they're, they're all helping each other and protecting one another in the 1660s, 70s and 80s uh, because they have to survive. But once the act of toleration is passed and it doesn't cost anything to be a nonconformist, really, that's when they start to devour themselves uh, in internal squabbles. Now, there are more contextual factors to explain why the hymn sing controversy erupted when it did. But one of the big picture factors is something like this, where post-toleration, you fight with each other. Pre-toleration, you protect each other. Uh, so... That's a long answer to, to, to the question. Why were they persecuted? Well, Charles II is, is saying, hey, you know, you guys killed my father. Uh, prepare to die. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, but that pressure served in some ways to solidify their identity, uh, at least for a time. It doesn't mean that they didn't have any internal squabbles during the 1660s, 70s, or 80s, but we don't it does seem to be a very much a survival mentality uh, during those three decades. And it seems too that, um, you know, they, they had such a high regard for worship. Obviously, you know, we, we talked about their emphasis on scripture, what is prescribed in scripture for worship. So it seems that they, they kept the main thing, the main thing until, you know, maybe later on, like with the hymn sing controversy, those, squabbles kind of came more publicly but it seems that the the main thing which is worship and ensuring that we're just keeping everything intact at, at the basics was kind of at the forefront of their mind i i can see that as being a lesson for us even though we don't have that kind of persecution we should still keep those main tenets of worship the priority um regardless of the situation hmm. um from this this whole period of time um that you've uh, described in the book, are there any big lessons you think that we can learn from uh, the particular Baptists that are applicable today or useful to us today? S certainly. Um, with more time, I, I would express more, but two, two main ones came to mind. One is what we were just talking about, that 
the first generation of particular Baptists, it really cost them something to become particular Baptists and to stay the course and remain particular Baptists. The, the second or third generation um, who live into toleration or even after toleration, you do see nonconformists post-toleration um, they don't, they don't seem to care as much. I mean, I'm generalizing, but if you don't pay for something, you don't, you don't really value it at times. It's just given to you. And so you see later on nonconformist churches lamenting in the 1690s and early 1700s, our condition in our state, they're saying, oh no, oh no, you know, we are, we are um, deteriorating and we are in a, a poor condition. You might, and you would think, you're in the best condition. You're post-toleration. You can finally <laughs> worship without any fear um, at all. You you are legally able to do this. But it, it seems to me that the second generation didn't, or the third generation didn't quite have the same appreciation for what their fathers had fought for and gained and given to them. And so we need to, as the lesson to be learned, therefore, is that as ministers or as church members, um, we need to not just, we need to teach the next generation, not just what we believe, but show them the value of it and the beauty of it, that it is worth, it, that it is valuable, that it is precious, mm. that it is worth preserving and worth defending and worth suffering for, but we're not suffering for it. That that may be the case, mm. but it's, it's worth, it, it has a value. It is to be defended. It is, it is to be, prized. Now, no one will believe you that it's valuable if you just argue with your brothers all the time about it. I'll say this isn't valuable when we just argue with each other. And so internal squabbles, I believe, devalue uh, what a community or a church believes, um, because clearly that's not enough to keep us together, you know. Um, so I think that we need to be careful to transmit the value and communicate the value of our our confessional heritage to the next generation uh, in a way that that they appreciate what they're receiving and i use that word appreciate they they see the the you know apreciar they they see the price they see the value of of what they are uh, receiving so that they then will transmit it with an equal value to the next generation but you know if you if you give your son or or your daughter some special toy from your childhood that is very precious to you but you don't explain to them this is this is delicate or you need to treat it in this careful way. They may throw it across the room because they just don't know. No, you have to be careful with this. And we we should have told them, hey, you have to treat this in a special way. And we wouldn't criticize them so much for, for treating it in a way that we never taught them to treat it. So I, I look at the transition from Edward Harrison to Nehemiah Cox and William Collins and others beyond them and the, the history of the Petty France Church. And I say we need to do as much work as we can to overlap the generations and take the church from one period to the next with God's blessing. Uh, but, you know, God doesn't bless seeds that aren't sown. Um, mm. You know, God doesn't bless fields that aren't tilled um, or plowed. Uh, and so we need to do the hard work and teach the next generation to do the hard work so that they value it and appreciate it. And very much related to that, the second thing, that I would say we can learn from this is that it's very important to invest in high quality ministerial training um, so that what we believe can be taught and defended with precision and skill. Not as though uh, ministerial training is a 
is a necessity for ordination or for churches as though you cannot be a pastor apart from something like an MDiv. That, that is not at all what I'm saying. But there is a value and a usefulness in high quality training so that um, what is believed can be communicated with, with precision and skill and can be defended with precision and skill. The first generation particular Baptists had a, a good group, a good core of university trained ministers that helped them to get started and established. After, you know, um, not long after that, the universities are, are closed to nonconformists. And so the second generation of particular Baptists don't even have the option of receiving a university training. So they had to seek alternative methods to educate themselves and to have what they called a standing ministry. You know, ministers who are educated and more ministers that are educated, you know, a, a, a line of well-equipped ministers. We need to do the same today. Uh, we need to invest in and appreciate and promote um, the best possible training for our ministers because you can't do the first thing I said if you it's very difficult to do the first thing I said if you don't have this. I said, show them the value and the beauty of, of the confessional heritage. Uh, show them it's worth defending and worth suffering for and things like this. Well, the, the most qualified persons to do that should be the ones who have studied it uh, at the deepest level, um, ideally. You know, this is not an all or nothing. You know, your, your, your dear grandmother who has grown up in the church and lived and died in the church, she can, she can communicate a value to you in a very special way. You know, my, my, my grandson appreciate this. This is important. I've seen it all my life. She can absolutely communicate to you value and worth. Um, but there's another kind of communicating that that comes from trained ministers uh, who have access to, to more literature perhaps or more um, a deeper level or kind of knowledge that needs to be handed on and, and handed down and passed on from generation to generation. So when I look at Edward Harrison's education or Benjamin Cox's education, and then I look at, for example, Nehemiah Cox and Thomas Harrison, their children, and those two men, Nehemiah and Thomas, are both noted as being very well educated. Well, that, that had to be done um, outside of the university context. And so that means that their parents invested in, or uh, if not their parents, then they themselves and others around them invested in their education. And that was valuable to the church. And we need to do the same thing today, um, prizing and um, promoting uh, high quality theological ministerial training for this generation and for future generations. Amen. Amen. Well, Brother Renahan, thank you for uh, being with us today and helping us walk through you know, the overview of your book and, and these important lessons that we can learn about particular Baptist history. We appreciate your time. Thank you, gentlemen. I, I enjoyed it very much. Like I said at the beginning, I don't think anyone's reading Petty France Park, too. So it's nice to get to talk about it. Um, yeah, free advertising, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I've long since accepted that other people are not going to have the same degree of interest. In that. That's okay. I'm not complaining, but it is nice to, to chat about it with other people. So thank you for taking the time to to read part of the book and uh, and express your interest and have me on, on your podcast. I appreciate it very much. You're very welcome. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. With that, everyone, thank you for joining us. Have a great Lord's Day tomorrow. And Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Thank you.